and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's episode, we're going to head over to the Dreamland Theater for our all-night horror movie marathon. We're going to go and grab a bucket of popcorn. <laughs> and then also, we're going to like try to dissect our weird like dreams we're having. Uh, but anyway, besides that, we are uh, today, we're going to be covering uh, a nice, fun little horror movie called popcorn from 1991 now my history with this movie is uh, recent came across where i really just found this on shutter i believe uh because you know shutter subscription and i it has like this iconic like cover of a dvd or blu-ray where it is this girl with like these this black hair and these like bangs and it's like a mask of hers and there's this skeleton behind her that's like holding up the face as like a mask right and so that's obviously like a striking image you know but i came across it and i had just thought you know it might be it might be cool to watch this one day why not and so i uh threw it on and i was like oh shit d wallace is in this movie uh, oh shit, Jill Shelton's in this movie. She was in the set father. That's cool. So, and just the the absolute craziness of this film and also just everything that has to go along with it. Oh, I also was like, wait, what the fuck? Mr. Hands in this movie from Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Are you kidding me? But anyway, so I <laughs> was just fascinated by it. And then I also... Um, when I was uh, uh, a Patreon of uh, Dead Meat, they actually did a commentary track on this. You know how I like my little commentary tracks, but I, um, I, I listened to theirs, and and that was really cool too to hear them talk about it, and I thought that was fun. A fun little fact about this is that the movie was actually shot in Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica, and I'll explain that a little bit later in the show. But yeah, I just thought this was like really. An interesting little film and I'd never heard of it before so I, I was just like alright and then I thought why not cover it for the show you know you know me I like me some horror up in here so I, I thought why not but as we normally do on this show I'm going to do a little bit of uh, the figures of this movie you know uh, talk about like the critical response of the movie uh, when it came out and then also a little bit about the production history and let me tell you something the production history of this movie is a, a crazy one to say the least but without further ado though let's get on to those figures. So Popcorn was released on February 1st, 1991, and the screenplay was written by Alan Ormsby, who was also the initial director of the film. He was then fired and replaced by Mark Harrier. And the movie was produced by Ashok Amritaj, Gary Gotch, Torben Jonke, and Bob Clark. Yes, the same Bob Clark who did Black Christmas and A Christmas Story. I couldn't find any budget information about this film, but I do have a box office of gross U.S. and Canada of $4,205,000. We're looking at a Rotten Tomato score of 38% on the tomato meter and a 41% audience score. We're looking at a 5.9 out of 10 on IMDb and a letterbox score of 3.2 out of 5. For our cast of characters, we have Jill Schoenlin as Maggie, Tom Villard as Toby, Dee Wallace as Suzanne, Derek Rydell as Mark, Malcolm Denary as Bud, Kelly Jo Minter as Cheryl, Yvette Soler as Joni, Elliot Hurst as Leon, Freddie Marie Simpson as Tina, Tony Roberts as Mr. Davis, Ray Walston as Dr. Manesne, Barry Jenner as Lieutenant Bradley, and Cindy Breakspear as Gloria Gates. Some critical response quotes about Popcorn are as follows. We have Matt Brunson from Film Frenzy who states, The offbeat angle eventually gives way to standard slasher film tropes. Fortunately, the movies within the movies are imaginatively realized. We then have Candace Russell from South Florida Sun Sentinel who states, The plot becomes repetitive and tiresome, though the movies within the movie, created by the filmmakers rather than pulled from the film vaults, are funny. And we have Gary Thompson from Philadelphia Daily News, who states, It is the recreation of these old horror movies that provide popcorn with its few inspired moments. Unhappily, the real movie proceeds in the interim. 
So before we move into any kind of plot summary for Popcorn, I wanted to go over some production history of the film and just how this film came to be and everything. And let me tell you something, this uh, this production history is kind of crazy, actually. So I got this information from, uh, actually, Joe Bob Briggs on The Last Drive-In, where he did a recent... Um, special where it was the Halloween hangout or something like that haunted Halloween hangout where he had actually Elvira on to show Elvira's haunted Hills. And then also they had Jill Shonlin on star of this movie popcorn uh, to show popcorn. And so a lot of this information I actually got from that special. And also Jill talked about her experience with the movie as well, but let's get started with this. So the basic script of popcorn was, uh, brought forth by one of the producers, Gary Gotch, uh, as I stated earlier. And so Gary brought the script to Bob Clark's attention. And as you may know already, Bob Clark is the same guy who did A Christmas Story, Black Christmas. He's a Canadian. And so he has since passed away, of course. But he was brought this script by Gary, and uh, Bob Clark knew Gary's parents, Gary Gotch's parents, because they actually invested and put up the money for Bob's first film, which is a film uh, called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, which is back in the 1970s, which he co-wrote with one of his best friends, Alan Ormsby, who will come up into this story later. Bob then asked Gary, uh, he asked Alan to redo the script that Gary gave him, and Alan started working on retooling it. So he added, like, the slasher element, he added the movies within the movie type of thing, and all of that. And in the meantime, uh, Bob Clark was looking for investors, because he would end up producing this movie. And so he ended up finding uh, investors who um, were trying to bring film production to the great country of Jamaica. Which is why this whole movie is shot in Kingston, Jamaica, and there is a lot of um, reggae music throughout it, uh, which is kind of a fun touch. Uh, Also, kind of an interesting fact, I guess, that was touched on was that if you notice in the movie theater in the movie, um, so it's supposed to be Southern California, right? That's where we're supposed to think this is. But uh, because, you know, Jamaica has quite a large population of African-American folks, uh, they had to, like, they put a lot of masks on these people, as you may know, because if you watch the movie, you know what I'm talking about. But uh, to kind of just mask the fact that, like, you know, uh, they didn't have a ton of uh, white people, honestly, uh, in this movie, uh, in the audience especially, because of the fact that they were in Jamaica and... Yeah, like they're kind of the minority there. So like it that's that was kind of an interesting fact that I learned from that um particular Joe Bob special, I guess. But uh yeah, it's so interesting that this movie was just like in Jamaica, you know, and that's but it was because of the money, you know, and, and that's where the money was. So Alan flies down to Jamaica to start making the movie, right? Um, as you do, and what and what he started with was actually the Movies within the movies. So this is The Mosquito, this is The Amazing Electrified Man, and The Stench, and also Possessor. Okay? So he started working on those, which is probably the most difficult part. Uh, So he decided to start with that first. Well, about a month or so into this, uh, we had... Torben Janke, who was a Danish guy who mostly did uh, commercials, uh, he called up Bob Clark and told Bob Clark, hey, uh, this isn't working. So, like, this guy's moving too slow and he's it's not going quick enough. I don't like the lead actress that you've hired, who is Amy O'Neill at the time, who had been uh, the daughter of Rick Moranis in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and the sequel, and just a general actor who was actually Bob Clark's first choice, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And his second choice was Jill Shonlin. And then Alan's first choice was actually Jill Shonlin, but they decided to cast Amy instead. But again, one of the producers was like, hey, we don't like her. You need to fire the director and you need to fire this lead actress. Otherwise, that money's going poof. And he's like, all right, don't worry, don't worry. I'll do this. So he comes down he fires one of his best friends for the last 20 years, and then he fires the lead actress, puts her home onto a, a plane back home. Fun little fact, too, uh, Joni in this movie, played by Yvette Soler, was actually roommates with Amy O'Neill at the time and actually accompanied her on the plane back home uh, because she was probably devastated because she got fired from this job. 
And this actually fractured uh, the relationship between Alan and Bob so much so that they really never spoke after this. Uh, And then, of course, now um, Bob Clark is dead. So, you know, it's just so sad to kind of think that. But, I mean, that that has to be really hard when you have a friend like this and you worked with them, you know, as well. and, And that all has come crashing down. But uh, that's what happened. So Bob fires them and ends up hiring Jill Shonlin based off her reputation alone. At this point, she had been in The Stepfather, When a Stranger Calls Back. Uh, she was just a known actress lady. And uh, he also hired Mark Harrier. Now, Mark Harrier had only been in Porky's as Billy, which was also a Bob Clark movie. And uh, I don't know what why exactly he was hired because it's not like he was a known director. Some people wonder why did Bob Clark not just step in and direct it himself? I don't really know why. I think maybe it was because he didn't want to get pigeonholed perhaps um, because he did make Black Christmas, of course, and, you know, he didn't want to have that. So maybe that was why, but we'll never know because he's passed now. But yeah, I I don't know why they hired Mark Harrier. Uh, On the the special that Jill was in and she was talking about with Joe, Bob and Darcy, you know, she mentions that he was a really nice guy and it was great and everything, but Bob was definitely there. It seems like quite a bit. And I think she even mentioned that, um, he was like her, his mentor on the film. Let's just say, I think was sort of a nice way to say, yeah, I think Bob Clark did a fair amount of the work, honestly. But, you know, because he obviously hired somebody who maybe didn't know exactly how to direct a movie completely. But, you know, who knows? Anyway, so along with that, right, you then have this... um, you have all this going on. So it was kind of an awkward set anyway, because Jill Shonlin was just kind of brought in and did some reshoots and stuff. Cause they had already shot some of this stuff anyway, uh, with the rest of the cast. And so they just kind of put her in there and she didn't really talk to the cast a whole lot. I guess it seemed like from what she had said, but not only this. So the new company, uh, that was distributing this movie was a place called studio three, which was actually founded by two executives from new world pictures. And if you don't know anything about world, new world pictures, yes, you do, because we talked about it on my Elvira mistress of the dark episode. And I'm pretty sure we mentioned it on another episode too, maybe, but I know I definitely mentioned that one. This is the same place that made Elvira mistress of the dark and Heather's, and then promptly went out of business not too long after. So, Studio 3 was founded by two people who used to work there, and they planned this marketing campaign to be targeted at teens. Because when you really look at this movie, it's not like it's super, like, gory or anything, I don't think. It's just, you know, I could see this getting away with a PG-13 rating, maybe, kind of, but... It got slept with an R rating, so that kind of fucked up the the marketing campaign, because now you're like, oh, we want teens to go see this, but now teens, unless they're 17, can't really go see it, so what the hell are we going to do? And so then in that case, it, you know, it only showed in like maybe a thousand theaters, like maybe a thousand screens, perhaps. Uh, like I said, it, it opened number eighth, I think. Uh, it only made like $4 million off of, I don't even know how much of a budget, probably not a big one, but still. But it was not necessarily a, uh, it was not exactly a success when it came out. And I think it just kind of went into obscurity, really. Um, I think that's really what happened. And, you know, it was on home video, I guess, uh, it seemed like. And and that, that seemed to do all right. But really, I don't think it was until... Because they released it in 2001, actually, uh, as a DVD. And then that's out of print now. But it wasn't until Synapse Films, I think, in 2017, they did a Blu-ray DVD combo of this. Um, And I guess people could now, like, find this movie again uh, to where I think it got a little more traction. Because this is an interesting movie where it has, like, Dee Wallace and Jill Shonlin and, like, Mr. Hand is in there. Like, you know, these people, you're like, what the hell is this movie? And where has this been? But, like, I just think it's so interesting that... Yeah, it kind of got this new life. And then also having, like, um, Shudder pick it up as well. So now it's on Shudder. It's on Tubi. You can readily find this pretty easily. But I think it's just kind of a nice little remembering of this movie that came 
you know, came and went and then now it's come back and I think has a nice little audience to it that kind of enjoys it. Uh, it's not a perfect film by any means, but I mean, I think it does its job generally. And, um, yeah, for sure. It's, it's one of these like forgotten little gems that they has. Now I would be remiss to say whether or not. So I definitely have heard this kind of idea of the movie that, There are definitely folks out there who believe that this film definitely inspired some of the opening of Scream 2. Now, I have listened to some of the Scream 2 commentary. I probably have listened to the whole thing. I don't actually know. But I've at least listened to some of it when I've watched that movie before. Because I love Scream 2. And the thing is, is that nobody on the the actual crew has said that like nobody involved in that movie has said, yes, this was absolutely like inspired by popcorn or whatever. Now I would more so think that perhaps like he knows you're alone inspired the opening of scream Two a bit more. Um, Cause if you don't already know that movie, that's a John Carpenter movie. Actually it's a TV movie with Tom Hanks in it, but that actually uh spoiler. It starts off with a, a woman being killed in a movie theater and that happening and you can if you've watched that you can know like oh okay i see the parallels but what i will say though is that i think if you do watch this film popcorn and you do watch scream 2 in the beginning i mean there are some parallels there where i'm kind of like hmm i i wouldn't be surprised if like there was a little bit of influence in there you know what i mean but yeah no like i wouldn't be surprised if that happened you know like uh, for me, like how the audience is a little bit like rowdy and like watching this bad movie, you know, and like even at the end where um, Jada Pinkett Smith gets killed, spoilers for Scream 2, I guess, but you know, when she's killed in the beginning and then in this movie, spoilers for, for popcorn, but uh, like Toby is killed in the end, right? You know, it's one of these things where it's like, you see that, like, oh, okay, I, I kind of see what's going on here, and and I don't know, I there is no evidence that I could find. Uh, you know, tell me if there is, unless I didn't find it, but you know, there's no evidence I found that substantiates that, like, literally, it was inspired by that. But I wouldn't put it off, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past the team of Scream Two to somehow have been inspired by that. You know what I mean? So I think that would be something for sure. So I'm glad I went over a little bit more of this history because I do think it's really interesting. Definitely watch if you have Shutter. Watch that um that special. I think that's really good actually. But without further ado, though, let's move into a plot summary of Popcorn. So we begin our film with like this creepy ass music going on, and then we have our title of Popcorn come up in like funky 90s you know font and we see these creepy ass faces that are in like water i guess in this tank and then we move into our actual like main character uh in her room this is maggie played by jill shonlin who had been in the stepfather by this point when a stranger calls back kind of a b horror scream queen if you will and so she's in bed having a nightmare. Apparently, uh, Jill Shonlin actually fell asleep in real life <laughs> when she was shooting this, uh, as you do, you know. And so she's having this nightmare. The nightmare is like a little girl in a white dress with her black hair. She's like running and running. And then you see this guy's like head on the table and like he's looking really mean. And then you have this guy with a dagger. And like I think there's some fire in there somewhere. It's a whole thing, y'all. Anyway, so she wakes up from her nightmare, just like, oh, God. And she records on her little tape recorder what she had just dreamt. Because we find out that Maggie is a film student, and she is going to school for film. So we're to assume that she's writing a screenplay, I guess. We then have an establishing shot of, like, where, uh, I guess, Maggie lives. And it's, like, really nice. And this is all in Kingston, Jamaica, as I stated earlier. So that's kind of fun. And then we have a uh, back turn to us. But we have this lady who's answering the phone. She gets, like, this weird phone call. But we then see the one, the only, Dee Wallace from The Howling, E.T., Cujo, just... uh, general icon honestly and she's playing the mother Suzanne 
So then um, we have Maggie rushing out to class. She grabs herself some orange juice because she's just so busy and she's just on her way to go. And she's talking about... um, She's talking about Sarah because that was in the nightmare before that, like, somebody keeps saying, Sarah, Sarah, and be like, why did you, uh, the mom asks, like, why did you name your character Sarah? And she's like, I don't know. And so it's like, oh, okay. But then we have our funky 90s music while um, Maggie is driving to school in her white car. And uh, we are coming up to the University of Southern California, quote unquote. So this is not California at all, but maybe make it look like that. And so then we see Maggie is like rushing to class, but she is accosted by Mark, played by Derek Rydell. And, and he's like so horny for her. He's like, come on, let's go back to my place and do a little something. And I like her little line where she says, Mark, it's the, um, it's the time of safe sex and sex with you is never safe or something like that or whatever. I don't remember. But then we have intro to film class. Uh, and so this is our intro to the faculty and the students of the film program here. Uh, so we have, of course, Maggie. We have Toby, who's played by Tom Villard, who unfortunately two years later ended up passing away from HIV AIDS. And he actually told the director that he was suffering with AIDS uh, like two or three weeks into this movie. But he does a really good performance in this. He was also in the movie My Girl um, before he passed, which is really interesting, actually. We then have Bud, played by Malcolm Denere. He's a wheelchair user, and he's kind of a little obnoxious, kind of, sort of, but, like, he's, like, the comic relief. We have Leon, who's played by Elliot Hurst, um, who is, I guess, into one of the girls. I don't remember who. We have Joni, played by Yvette Soler, who I think I mentioned earlier, but she was actually living with the original actress, Amy O'Neill, who was playing Maggie. And actually accompanied her on the plane back to back to home where, you know, after uh, Amy O'Neill was fired. We then have uh, Tina, played by Freddie Marie Simpson. We have Cheryl, played by Kelly Jo Minter, who is from People Under the Stairs. She's from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child, I believe. And she's an all-around badass. I loved Kelly Jo Minter. Um, and... Yeah, that's pretty much... Oh, and we have Mr. Davis, played by Tony Roberts. Uh, So he is, like, the main guy. And then we have some lady in the background, who I don't know who that is. But anyway, so we have uh, these folks who are all in this class. And so Toby suggests, because I guess they're not really getting a whole lot of money for their department, so he suggests to have an all-night horror-thon, and he folds up these different um, posters for the different movies that they're going to show at this horathon. So the first we have is The Mosquito. The second we have, I think, is The Amazing Electrified Man. And the third one is The Stench. And they're all kind of talking about each respective movie. I do also like how in this, I believe it's Cheryl who says something about um, people spending six bucks for a movie. And I was like, God damn. Like, I mean, I was around. I wasn't around in 1991, actually. But God damn, six bucks for a movie. Ugh. That'd be heaven. Are you kidding me? Like, ugh, I'd love that. But I, I just thought it was kind of funny. And then they also touch on the gimmicks of this movie and uh, also of these movies. So you have, like, for example, Mosquito has, like, a big mosquito that's going to be ziplined in uh, to the theater. The Amazing Electrified Man is going to have, like, this kind of shocking kind of thing going on with the different seats in the theater. And then the stench is going to have odor vision or odorama uh, where smells will be kind of siphoned into the theater and everything. And these gimmicks, of course, call back to the one and only William Castle, who made a bunch of different movies back in like the 50s and 60s and was very known for gimmicks um, and using gimmicks as part of his filmmaking and all that good stuff. And then we have Maggie in the back with her glasses because, of course, she's smart. And so she's, like, drawing, uh, like, what her dreams look like and what her her story is coming along with. And then we have our intro to the Dreamland Theater. And so we have this Dreamland Theater going on. So this theater, I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it is a actual still theater that's in Kingston. Um, I will say that this theater was not exactly 
uh, kept very well, I don't think. Um, Dee Wallace, I think, has said how horrible it smelled in there. Uh, because she, as I'll tell you a little bit, but she is in some scenes coming up. And, uh, yeah, it just wasn't uh, upkept very well. And I think still it hasn't been upkept very well. But, you know, they did what they could to, to turn it into a theater that was actually working. And so uh, the class goes inside the theater and they meet Malcolm, uh, who is played by Ray Walston, also known as Mr. Hand from Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is a movie I absolutely love. And so he is a movie memorabilia shop owner who he is giving some of his memorabilia to them for their horror-a-thon. And he's going on and on about this and um, how important this stuff is and uh, the good old days of cinema and all that kind of stuff. And so he shows off all of his memorabilia to these folks. And then we have the wonderful... I, I have in my notes it's a fucking iconic montage <laughs> because of course like this is a theater that has been used in a while and it's supposed to kind of look like that and so they end up uh, doing a cleaning montage to a song called Saturday Night at the Movies um, which is a reggae song uh, that is in this movie uh, again because it was in Jamaica so why not um, apparently it was uh Written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, Weil, and then uh, performed by Ozzy D and Stevie G is what we have on IMDb. But anyway, so it's just so good. It's such a good montage <laughs> because you just have like these people. Like I love how like um, Joni and Cheryl like they take this like cloth off of the popcorn machine and like it's just so cute. I love it so much. Anyway, so then the um, students are all in costume outside the theater. So, like, Joni's a nurse, and then, like, I think um, I think Bud's, like, an usher, and then one of them says, I look like a fucking snow cone, which I thought was fun, and they're getting all ready for the movie-thon that's going to be happening. Anyway, so then, while they're doing all this, the gang finds an old movie in, the, in a tin, in a, the can, if you will, and they decide to screen it. And so when they are screening it, they're kind of mystery science theatering it a little bit where they're just like making fun of it because you have this weird ass eye that comes up on the screen, like they're screening it. And then the students, like I said, are ribbing the movie pretty much like they're making fun of it. Um, but it is kind of a weird fucking movie because you have like, uh, I think it's just saying like, I am the possessor. I am the possessor and blah, blah, blah and all this stuff. Then you see some guy, like, with his mouth, and he's saying these things, and then there's blood coming out of his mouth. It's really fucking weird. And so, then, um, the movie you find is called Possessor, because that's what it comes up as. And then Maggie is having these, like, weird flashbacks to her dreams. So, kind of like how, you know, you could see that there's, like, cutting within, like, what her dreams were, and then what this movie has on, on what's showing, pretty much. And so then uh, Maggie passes out during the film, as you do, and uh, everyone is, like, all around her, and they're saying, like, give the girl some space, you know, all this. I love Cheryl, by the way. I love her in this movie, but uh, we then get our intro to the character of Lanyard Gates. And so Lanyard Gates was this guy who was a filmmaker. He is the maker and director of this movie they just watched possessor and the legend is is that he was panned by critics when he put up this movie and pretty much he decided to murder his family and then the movie theater burned down at that same night and he was like he his family was killed i guess and there was other people killed but then he himself uh nobody ever found his body so it's just to assume that he's like i don't know out there somewhere but now we're back home with Maggie. Maggie is asking her mother about Lanyard Gates and asking her about this and just trying to find out more information because of this weird film that they found and everything like that. And her mom just tells her to quit the program and to quit school, I guess, and is wants to go travel with her. Because I guess we're to assume that Suzanne, the mom, is a travel agent of some sort, I guess, I'm assuming. Um... But Maggie is talking about how she feels like cyclically connected to this film. Like she feels like what she was seeing on that film is kind of like what she has been experiencing in her nightmares. So she just feels really like kismically uh, 
connected to the movie, I guess. Anyway, so then when Maggie's on her way to bed, going to sleep, mom gets like a creepy phone call from the possessor because he says he's the possessor. And so we have in there that I guess they decide they're going to meet at the theater tonight um, and bring your gun, I guess. I'm assuming. I, I, I guess so that's what I saw in the film. Um, so yeah, like D. Wallace ain't playing around. I hate my notes sometimes because I'm so stupid. But anyway, so I have in my notes is that mom goes to dreamland with her gat ready to pop off is how I have it in my notes because I am so stupid. But anyway, so... But that's pretty much what she's doing, is that Suzanne goes to this theater, this stinky, gross theater, apparently, and um, she's just ready to pop off. She got her gun, okay? Listen. So the marquee letters start to fall off and, like, almost hit Suzanne, and then, because uh, they had put these up for the horror but now the marquee just shows Possessor after they've all, like, you know, knocked off and everything. So then we see that Suzanne goes up and gets a ticket from the box office and she goes into the theater right and then we see that this weird ass movie is playing which i guess is also possessor i'm i'm assuming that that's what's showing because that's what it has on the marquee and then the mom uh so suzanne like she goes up and then she like turns around and i said in my notes that she gets the morticia adams light uh if you don't know that so if you've ever never watched uh the adams family or the adams family values movies um Angelica Houston, who plays Morticia Adams, gets a very specific kind of light on her eyes uh, because she's iconic. And so it's just on her eyes, of course. And so D. Wallace gets the same kind of thing uh, on this movie, which is funny because they actually, um, I think Adam's family would have come out just around this time, too, which is interesting. But we see that Lanyard, or who we are to assume is Lanyard Gates, is like running through the theater and like she's trying to like shoot him or like they somehow have some kind of history, I guess. Um, and so the mom, Suzanne shoots and then she's like her backs against a wall or whatever. And these hands just get taken and she's taken by these hands that like pop out and like just grab her. Um, so we're to assume that she's just like been taken and she is just now like, you know, uh, we don't think, we don't know if she's dead or anything, but we, you know, we're to assume that she's been kidnapped now and she's taken by whatever the evil that lives in this theater, I guess. So then we see, we have folks lining up for the horror as you do in different costumes. We have like a guy who has like two heads on him. Apparently his name is Ethan Ormsby. Uh, the actor is. And so I'm assuming that that is somehow Alan Ormsby, like family member. I'm assuming, <laughs> I don't know actually who, um, but I'm assuming it's one of like his kids or like a, a cousin or like a, a nephew of his or something. But anyway, so we see these people like lining up for the movie thon. So we have like, uh, Maggie is, uh, doing the box office. We see that, uh, I think it's Joni and the other guy. What's his name? Whoever that other guy is. Um, like they're playing around a little bit, like being these characters. And then, um, we also see folks getting sat in the theater for like, you know, this whole horror thon and everything. We then see Mark coming up. Um, and then we also see, so Mark comes up and then he comes and he has a new bitch named Joy, apparently. And we're like, oh, well, who the hell is Joy? And Joy is played by Karen Witter, who is actually a Playboy playmate, technically, I guess, which is interesting. Um, so yeah. Uh, but she at one time was, you know, an actress. And so uh, that is who he comes up with. And of course, this does not make Maggie very happy. So <laughs> and then we have um, Lanyard Gates or too weird to assume as Lanyard Gates comes up to the theater because, again, everyone's in costumes. So he could just be mistaken for another guy in a costume. And so he comes up and he says something about he calls Maggie Sarah and then she's like, oh, shit, like, it must be Lanyard Gates, like, oh, God, 
Um, and then also in between this, we also have uh, Cheryl is just slinging merch, I guess. So she's just like, hey, $20, $20 for two shirts, you know, blah, 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 whatever like that. And I just think she's so funny. I love her. But anyway, so then um, we have the first movie that starts. Um, so everyone's in the theater and everyone's, you know, just having a good time. And the first movie starts. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to go too deep into these movies because it's not. Even though these movies are kind of awesome and wonderful, and as I mentioned earlier, so these movies within the movie were all shot by Alan Ormsby, but then he got fired. So then, it, you know, but they're really, really good, and I think they're an interesting set piece in the movie as well, which I just think is cool. But The Mosquito is very much like a movie like Them, or a movie about, like, you know, just this giant, like bug that's like taking over tarantula you know if that's one or any of these kinds of movies but yeah that's the first movie the mosquito and so um maggie is telling toby that you know she saw lanyard gates like he called her sarah and like he must be coming back to do something you know what i mean and so maggie uh so maggie mans the booth because she's got to be in the booth, because she goes up and she has somebody else take over the box office, but she goes up and she is telling Toby this in the projection booth. And so Maggie mans the booth up there and Toby then goes to investigate what's going on. And then some guy, some big dude, I guess, uh, because in the middle or in the meantime, uh, Mark and Joy went and sat down, but then Mark gets up and goes somewhere, and then some guy just comes over and sits with Joy, I guess. Uh, I don't know who this guy is, but he's just, like, this big burly dude. Anyway, so then we see that Maggie is in the projection booth, and Mark comes up from behind her and scares her, pretty much. And so then, um, during this time as well, after that, um, we then have the professor is getting this thing set up because again we're cutting back and forth to the actual movie within the movie of the mosquito but the professor professor davis is getting the mosquito ready so he has this big mosquito that is remote controlled that is then going to fly in to the audience and like scare everybody right um so he's getting that ready to fly in during the movie as he's supposed to do so he's getting that set up with his like little remote control like um controller thing and all that good stuff um and so at the very right time, the mosquito flies in and he flies it in and it, the crowd goes wild. And they're like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Blah, 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 blah. But then we see another person with the same kind of remote control, like, you know, thingamajig. And he and again, to her to assume it's lanyard. He's controlling the mosquito because it's just went out into the crowd and like made everyone go crazy. But now he's Lanyard is controlling it to come back towards Professor Davis. And pretty much what happens is he kills Professor Davis with this mosquito. And one of the other things I kind of like about this movie is that almost every death we see is like literally a like slow motion fucking like death, I guess, which is like really kind of funny. Um, I mean, it's not funny that they died, I guess, but like, it's more so just like how melodramatic it is kind of, but anyway, so that's our first death of this, the movie pretty much from what we understand. Um, we then have the end of the mosquito movie and everything like that. And then at that same time, Lanyard is now dragging away the professor's body. And we then see, uh, somebody is making these real life face masks, uh, out of people's like, uh, likenesses of their faces pretty much. So then we have Mark and Maggie, uh, talk about, what Lanyard and Sarah are. So this is Maggie talking about, okay, here's who Lanyard Gates is. This is the whole story. And then Sarah is this other person who must be like somehow connected with me. You know what I mean? And so they're talking because Mark's not really believing a whole lot of this. And then Toby comes in and he's pissed because he apparently got locked out of the theater. He had to go all the way around. He almost got 
attacked by a dog and all these things. So he's just like, you know, what the fuck? Like, you know, I got locked out and blah, 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 and all this, right? So we have that whole scene going on. Then we have um, the second movie, Start, which, which is the amazing electrified man. And so this is a movie that's very much like the 50, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman or one of those kinds of movies where, you know, it's very 1950s, 1960s inspired. And so this is actually starring Bruce Glover, who's Crispin Glover's um, father, <laughs> which is kind of funny because actually, oh, you know what? Actually, that thing that I was talking about earlier, the um, the best of times that Jill Schoenlund was in, I think she was actually in there with Nicolas Cage and Crispin Glover, if I'm not mistaken, which is just very funny because Crispin Glover's dad's in this movie. But anyway, so and then he was in um, part four of Halloween of uh, not Halloween. Jesus Christ. Friday the 13th, which is really fun. But Maggie goes back to the box office to go do her job. And then Mark goes back to Joy. But again, that guy is sitting with her. And so he then gets punched out. And at the same time, like we're going cutting back and forth between the movie. Uh, there's this judge that's like banging on a gavel. And at the same time he bangs on the gavel, the guy punches Mark in the face and he goes down. So then Maggie is listening to her recording um, of like what she's recorded about, and then she hears Lanyard. So I guess Lanyard Gates got a hold of her tape recorder, I guess, and is now like giving her a voice message or something. And so Maggie is going and looking for Tina, who is like this little usherette lady that she you know is dressed up as. But she decides to go looking for her because I think she was trying to find Professor Davis and apparently Tina was the last one to see him or something like that. I will also say this whole movie is like kind of confusing a little bit. So plot, you know, it's there, but you know, whatever. But so Maggie starts going looking for Tina. We then see Tina and Mr. Davis. They see one another. So Tina sees Mr. Davis and is like, oh, hey, like, you know, I'm here. Like, I'm coming up to see you. And so then we have a scene with Jill and Mark and Bud where they're all up because Bud is up there in his wheelchair and he's going to be doing the electrified man thing. Where in this movie, it's going to be that um, there are electrifying things on the seats that are going to go off respectively, um, to shock the audience during certain parts of the film. And that's what Bud's going to be doing. So, but then we have that scene going on and then Tina and Mr. Davis. So they have a very like, uh, inappropriate relationship because Tina's talking about how like people just wonder how, you know, I have such good grades. I, how I do so much extra credit, but they're having an inappropriate relationship. But then when Tina is kissing Mr. Davis, quote unquote, well, this isn't Mr. Davis because we already know Mr. Davis is dead. Um, then this is actually Lanyard like dressed up as Mr. Davis with this like weird ass face. Um, and Tina then dies because like her lips and her face is like, it's like this weird, like not Lady in the Tramp, but it's very much like a, her his face like. Mr. Davis's face is being pulled off and it's pulling her face off too. And the effects are kind of sick. Whoever did the, um, the special effects for this was actually pretty good. Um, and then you see this fucking scary ass face, uh, underneath that, that like this guy or whoever the fuck this is, um, he has this scary ass face where he's like burned and his eyes are yellow and it's fucking scary. And this is in the trailer for this movie too. So it's fucking scary as shit. If you were a kid and you saw this fucking trailer, you'd be scared as shit. But anyway, so then Jill and Mark, they're up in like the the upper levels, I guess, and they see Tina. Okay. And but it's really just whoever this monster guy is, this lanyard guy, I guess we're to assume he's lanyard gates. Um, we see Tina, who's really just being like manipulated by uh she's dead and he's she's being manipulated by lanyard about like you know and he's like making her talk i guess and all this shit and then even mark says something about like she needs to eat better because she looks like shit (laughs) or whatever so i was just like okay jesus but yeah so tina's dead and so the jill and mark they go outside of the theater and they get locked out so they got to go around and then they think they find Professor Davis's car and his briefcase in his car. So he's like, oh, she must, like, he must still be here then. Um, 
so then we see that Tina, Tina, quote unquote, um, goes and sets up Bud to get electrocuted because she, you know, so this Tina person, like, you know, I guess it's now to assume that, you know, somehow like Lanyard has gotten into this get up, I guess. And so she sets it up or he sets it up to get Bud electrocuted. So like, they're setting up like on his wheelchair, like putting these like um, fucking jumper cable things on there and pretty much like uh, taping his mouth shut and everything like that. And then they have this recording. Um, I guess Lanyard has this recording that he like play presses play on to show what's going to happen. And pretty much saying that like on this whole board, this electrifying board or whatever, like, when it gets to a certain point, it's going to electrocute Bud. And so Bud is like, oh, fuck. Like, you know, no, this is horrible. Um, then we see Mark and Maggie. They come back into the theater um, after being outside. And then um, we see that Maggie and Cheryl and Mark, they decide to go look for Bud. Well, in the meantime, we're cutting back in between like this film and then also Bud's demise and everything. But then pretty much what happens is that it too late for bud and bud gets electrocuted so we see that he goes up with the same time that this guy you know on the film goes up uh christopher glover's dad uh he goes up and he gets electrocuted we then see that bud gets electrocuted which is like so sad so he gets electrocuted and the lights flicker throughout the theater um because there's an i guess it's such a powerful enough like electroshock that like somehow it's affecting the whole theater and everything and then the movie theater lights all go out so everyone's in the fucking dark which is like scary as shit when you think about it and so it's just like really really creepy but then what ends up happening is that of course because this is a jamaican movie apparently um they bring out the reggae band so i think it was like Joni and uh the other guy <laughs> like they uh they bring out this band uh because it was they were there beforehand they were there um when people were coming in uh entertaining folks so they were like in the green room apparently so like oh let's bring them out to like until we get the lights back on let's bring them out and they'll have a concert so that's how you do that so they bring out the reggae band to entertain the people during the blackout and so Maggie, Cheryl, and Mark, they go upstairs um, to try to find Bud. And then I think, like, Mark, like, ends up falling down the stairs. And I think Cheryl ends up stepping on him by accident. Um, but anyway, so then we have that um, Maggie ends up going in and kind of finding Bud. But then she ends up finding Lanyard. And he, like, looks really creepy as fuck. And he calls her Sarah. And then she's just like, oh, no. Oh, no. Um, and so Maggie then runs. My notes literally say Maggie runs slow-mo as fuck through the nightmare. So it's like her running away, trying to get away from this. But it's also intercut with, like, her actual nightmare and everything as well. It's kind of really crazy. And it's, it, like I said, it's slow-mo as fuck. But then Maggie runs into Toby. Because we're wondering where the hell he's been. So, like, he runs into to she runs into Toby, and Maggie then realizes that Lanyard is her father. Okay, and that she's Sarah. And so Joy then comes across them. Um, so we see that Maggie and Toby are together, but then Joy, the bitch from earlier, um, she comes across them and is like, oh, well, look who we have here. And so then... Um, that comes back as a little bit of a point, but then we're back to the band. Okay. We're back to the reggae band as you are. And so then, um, we're back to that band. So Maggie finds out that she's Sarah Gates. Her mom isn't her mom. It's actually her aunt Suzanne who like put fire to the, the movie theater that night because apparently Sarah was going to be killed. And so again, Maggie was going to be killed, I guess. And so then this is like Maggie breaking down uh, at this point um, because it's all hitting her at once that like this has all happened. So then we see that um, Maggie and Toby, they decide to go underground to try to find and turn the lights on because that's where the breakers are. So they're like, we got to try and get these lights back on. So like, let's try to do that. So then 
Maggie sees a figure in the dark. So we see that Toby goes down there. He falls down in underground. And so Sarah's like, no, it's not Sarah. Uh, Maggie is like, you know, Toby, are you okay? And she like goes down beneath there as well with her like little flashlight. And she starts seeing this like figure in the dark, which is like just really weird. And she's just like, oh God, like, you know, she has her little flashlight. She's looking around and everything. And then she starts hearing these weird noises and she's just like under the underground pretty much. And then she's confronted, uh, behind her is like this creepy figure and he says welcome home or something like that it's like really fucking creepy dude like that's what i'm saying some of these parts of the movie are like really fucking creepy um when you really look at them but then the lights finally come back on in the theater and then now we have this third and final movie that we are uh, expected to have which is now the stench and so the stench is very much like a movie sort of like uh, a godzilla or very much a japanese toho film um that's dubbed and so this is very much that Maggie is, we then see Maggie is held in, like, this weird mask seat where, like, her head is in this, like, weird, like, um, contraption, um, and that's where she's being held, and pretty much we are, uh, revealed that Toby, this whole time, has actually been the killer, and so we find out from Exposition Dump that Toby was actually caught in the theater the night of Lanyard Gates's like, stunt that he was pulling and so like you know sarah got out and suzanne got out and you know like gloria gates i guess who was like maggie's actual mom died uh and then i guess toby's mom also died and then he lost most of his skin right and so that's when we then see like underneath all this he has like no fucking skin pretty much. And he has these yellow eyes and all this stuff. And it's just like really fucking creepy looking. So Toby then shows, uh, Maggie what it's like to get ready on a normal day. Cause he's gotten so, um, he's gotten so used to this that he's able to pretty much manipulate, uh, anybody's face to look like anybody pretty much. Cause he doesn't have his own face. And so, um, we see that Maggie says that he's crazy. And then Toby then tells his plan to actually recreate Possessor, to recreate this whole thing that Lanyard Gates started and was going to do. And he's going to finish the job pretty much, I guess, is what we're to assume or what is being told to us. Joy then comes out of the theater, the bitch from earlier, and she tells that Maggie and Toby were together, right, uh, to Mark. And so then Mark uh, is there with, like, I think Cheryl and Joni or something like that. And so the guy that uh, was that punched him earlier, he comes out of the theater and uh, we see that Cheryl, because he's trying to get all big and mad with Mark or whatever, but Cheryl, like, punches him in the face be like uh you don't hit girls you swear to god that's all i need to know boom and i love it um and then she kicks joy out you know she just kicks both of them out so it's so wonderful but then we have mark heading to toby's place because you know because of course Joni knows where toby lives or whatever but we're now to assume that like, oh, here's what's going on. And like, we need to find out more about Toby, I guess, and what's going on with him. So that's what Mark is going to do to investigate. Because we don't know what's actually going on with him. But we actually do because he's the killer. Anyway, so then we're back to Toby and and Maggie and everything like that. And I also like how in one of these scenes, I think before, like, she says something, Maggie says something to the effect of like, after Toby has told her all of this stuff and all that information she just says that makes perfect sense and be like does it really though but anyway but toby reveals that suzanne the mom is in this like weird body cast thing with like her gun or whatever and so uh then it's it's kind of a funny line but he's like you know i have about an hour left before midnight i have time to kill and so then toby dresses up as a mad scientist where that other guy was like also dressed up as this mad scientist Leon is his name. God damn it. My my 
notes just come back. But yeah, so Toby dresses up as Leon pretty much. He dresses up in this like mad scientist getup. Because we see that Leon, I guess Leon and Joni have been hanging out. And so then Leon uh, goes to the bathroom to go take a piss. And then his, uh, then I guess like Toby is right next to him in the same costume. He looks the same as him. And he pees on his like feet or whatever. And then he gets killed in the bathroom because Toby takes him into the stall and like puts this thing because it's the stench. It's the, uh, that's the, the last movie that's playing. And so he like somehow makes him explode, I guess is what I'm assuming. But then we have, um, Joni is in the room where they're like putting the, the stench together and they're going to be like siphoning it through to the, um, to the theater. And so, but Joni is like showing her love to Toby because we just got a little bit of that from before Mark was going to his place. We see that uh, Joni really loves Toby in a way. And so Joni talks about how, you know, she loves Toby and all this. But then this makes Toby kind of go crazy or whatever, right? Or really, like, she shares that, but like, she doesn't know it's Toby. She thinks it's um, Leon. So then, anyway. But I think that kind of spares her in a way because she doesn't die at the end. So then we have the theaters full with the stench and everything like that. And then um, Toby rolls out Suzanne to the back of the screen where, again, he's he's going to get all this started. And then, honestly, just Toby's just being creepy as fuck, kind of. Um, yeah, he's just like just the voice he uses and just like his mocking and and all of this is just like really creepy and just the way he looks is like really creepy too. But then we have Mark ending up at Toby's apartment, which is not that far away from the theater apparently. And he discovers the landlord there, who I guess is an out-of-work actor, apparently, which you find out. The land, uh, the landlord is going through the apartment, and he's saying, oh, I should have kicked this guy out six months ago. Like, you know, like, he was talking about, like, all the things that, you know, he found in his apartment and all this shit and, like, how crazy Toby would be and all this. And at the same time, uh, you cut back to Toby actually setting up the uh, film, the Possessor film, to be played while he's also, like, weirdly humming, like, let's all go to the lobby, kind of. It's, like, really creepy. Um, but, yeah, so we have that whole scene where, like, Mark finds out at the apartment of Tobias Bahar apartment, he finds out that, like, all of this stuff is, like, he's been planning it this whole time. Like, Toby's been planning it this whole time. So then Possessor starts to play. Uh, so I don't even know if we really finished the stench movie. I guess we kind of do. But then um, Possessor starts to play as Toby would want it. And Toby comes out into the audience and he has put Maggie into an Iron Maiden dress where he says something also about like how you just thought Iron Maiden was a heavy metal band or something like that. But anyway, so he's put her in this like white Iron Maiden dress uh, where she can't get out of it. And so Mark tries to get into the theater, but he can't because he's locked out. And so he actually climbs up the theater to enter it. And he comes through a window, you see. So then Toby is setting up the stage for Possessor, right? And he is um, he's setting up that last like little bit of the film um, to then begin to recreate the end of the film. So he has like his dagger and he has all that going on. And he then reveals himself to... Oh, yeah, because when he's out in the um, the audience, he comes through the back of the theater and he, you know, nobody knows that he's not real or that he's real, I guess. Um, nobody knows he's real because he just looks like he's in a costume, kind of like other people are. So, you know, he's able to get away with it. But then anyway, he reveals um, to the audience the set of Possessor. So he has, he has like uh, the mom there. He has uh, Maggie there and all this stuff. And so then he's counting down uh, to kill Maggie, pretty much, because that's the whole point. And so he's having the audience count down to this and, and everything like that. It's like really crazy uh, because they don't realize that it's not you know, a joke. It's real. Like, they don't realize. They just think it's a marketing gimmick or whatever. Which is why when I mentioned earlier in my podcast, this episode, that this is where I start to see some of the similarities of Scream 2 because I'm like, oh yeah, like I could definitely see this being kind of influenced by that because you definitely get some of those vibes a little bit. 
But we see that Mark ziplines down to save Maggie. So he like ziplines in uh, where like the mosquito had come in and he ziplines down to be able to then save Maggie. And so at this time too, because the mosquito was on that um, whole zipline, the mosquito actually skewers Toby and it kills him. And you just see him like kind of swing back and forth being skewered through the heart or the torso or whatever. And so then Mark then saves Sarah from this Iron Maiden that she's in and everyone's saved now so that, you know, Suzanne, the mom is now saved. Um, Maggie is now saved. We see that uh, Joni and Cheryl are still alive, but everybody else has been killed. The mom then goes home and all of that. And then pretty much from there, we have our end with our, uh, our Mark and Sarah, pretty much, I guess. We have that. Uh, where, you know, I think they say something about, like, my life is just so crazy. Um, my life is just a movie in a way. And, like, then I think Mark says something to the effect of, like, well, next time let's make it a comedy, okay? And so then we have that, and then we have this awesome reggae song that we then have our title, you know, end title sequence. We have that with our end credits um, where it's, like, um, spooky movies or something like that. It's a really fun song. And that's the end, my friends, of Popcorn. So in regards to Popcorn uh, as a movie, you know, my final thoughts on it or anything like that, I will say I do think this movie is a nice little kind of gem of a movie. It's not going to be for everybody. Um, There are parts that kind of fall a little flat and, you know, and, and, you know, this movie was not exactly a box office success or anything when it came out. But I will say, I think it is a just fun little movie that's kind of meta a little bit. Uh, that's that's great. Uh, these people are aware of horror movies and some of the tropes within horror movies of that sort. So it's kind of fun to see that. And I think generally there are is some imagery in here that is truly actually like frightening and scary. So I think that's like really good. I've heard this uh, be paired with Joe Dante's matinee, which I've never seen that movie, but uh, this might be a fun little double feature to do, perhaps. Uh, maybe I need to get on watching that, you know, just to, to have that. But I do think if you're a horror fan, I would for sure check this out because I think it is a nice little uh, like nice little gem of a, a early 90s slasher movie that, you know, is it's is just fun to watch here and there, you know? Don't take it too seriously, but I mean, generally, like... It's a fun little thing. Uh, right now, you can watch it on Shutter. It's been on there for a minute. Like I said, uh, the last drive-in did do uh, a special on it uh, as part of their ha- ha- haunted Halloween hangout or whatever. So that's cool. I would definitely give that a watch if you have Shutter or AMC Plus. You can also see this on Tubi as well. So if you want to watch it with ads, but it's for the free, you can watch it there. Uh, and yeah, I would definitely, I would definitely at least give this a, a shot to see if you like it. And, uh, I don't think it's a, a horrible movie. There's way worse movies out there, but yeah, I would definitely give it a shot and watch it and just enjoy the crazy convoluted, you know, <laughs> plot a little bit, but stay for the fun special effects and, you know, Jill Shonlin and her beautiful voice that she has. Like, why not? But yeah, definitely give it a watch. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. In case you want to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you just want to say, hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram handle is Cult Cinema Circle, and Twitter handle is Cult Cine Circle. On those platforms, I tend to announce the different episodes I'm going to be doing. I'll make little Instagram stories when we have an episode drop and just generally interact with anybody on there that wants to interact with me. You can also follow me on Letterboxd at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On there, I log the movies that I watch and write little reviews about them and just general foolishness over there. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much out there everywhere. 
Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review so we can grow the audience more and also just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast where I'll be covering 1984's Night of the Comet. Two girls from the valley wake up to find that a passing comet has eradicated their world and left behind a mysterious red dust and a pack of cannibal mutants. With the help of a friendly truck driver, the girls save the earth from a villainous think tank, karate chop their way through flesh-eating zombies, and of course, find time to go to the mall. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, and remember... There's more social relevance and character development in Police Academy 5 than in all of Ingemar Bergman's cinematic smorgasbord. Take care. Bye.